We're getting close to the end of the series, and um, hopefully it's been helpful to you as it has been to me to try to think about and learn some principles from the book of Nehemiah about the current season that we're in in our church. Today we're going to talk about the next few principles from the book of Nehemiah, generosity, God's word, and repentance. Generosity, God's word, and repentance. But before we do, let's pray together one more time. Lord Jesus, help us now to hear from you. Help us to understand your word. Help us to learn from the example of the past. Help us to um, be the people that you've called us to be in this season, God of the life of our church. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. Speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. So, we've been learning some lessons through the book of Nehemiah. We've learned about how God uses courage and leadership and determination and holiness and brokenness and repentance and focus to rebuild what sin and judgment has torn down. Um, To just quickly go over the past several weeks, we talked about how we have to be broken over where we are how we have to be prayerful, crying out to God to begin to change things. And then there has to be a willingness and desire for we ourselves to be used by God as a change agent, right? When Nehemiah heard about the walls torn down, he didn't just just cry about it. He prayed about it and realized that he was in the position to do something about it. And so he opened himself, made himself available to God to be the agent of change to be used of God to bring that change in Jerusalem. Uh, We talked about how it takes honestly assessing the situation, seeing what's really there, not what we wish was there. It takes confidence in the power of God to do what only he can do. We talked about how it takes teamwork, all hands on deck, everybody picking up a sword and a trowel to do the work of God and not being like the, uh, the, the Kohite nobles, if you remember, who it said they would not stoop to serve their Lord. It takes determination and perseverance, a refusal to be drawn or allured off course, as we talked about last time. And we saw how that when the work is done as labors for the Lord, it is recorded in heaven. And we find ourselves on the role of the people of God who have faithfully served their Lord. Today, we're going to talk about three more essential principles. That is God, uh, generosity, God's word and repentance, generosity, God's word and repentance. Okay, we're going to begin this morning um, in Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. Okay, and uh, the, the, the three main points that we're going to see are, is, is number one, rebuilders give to see the work completed. Rebuilders give to see the work completed. Number two, rebuilders recommit themselves to God's word. Rebuilders recommit themselves to God's word. And then number three, Rebuilders acknowledge their sin and plead for God's mercy. Rebuilders acknowledge their sin and plead for God's mercy. First, we're going to talk about rebuilders give to see the work completed. We're going to see this from Nehemiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 66. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Nehemiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 66. It says, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. 
And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And their donkeys, 66,720. Now, some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minus of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minus of silver. And the rest, and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minus of silver, and 67 priest's garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Okay. So, you may be seated. All right. So, after the wall was built, Nehemiah records again the family lineages, which we talked about last time, right? Was a testimony of God's faithfulness to the, the Israel, right? The, the, the genealogies, which we typically skip over, for a Jewish person, it was a witness to the faithfulness of God. God preserved a remnant. God kept alive a people to bring back into the land, just as he promised that he would. He kept the nation alive. He kept his promise. Okay? And, um, and now, as we continue through the book of Nehemiah, we see um, a, a picture here, I believe, of, uh, of kind of a reconstitution of God's people. And, uh, and we can take that as kind of a type and a picture for our present day. When we, when, uh, <clears throat> when they begin rebuilding this wall, remember, you can imagine a defensive wall around the entire city. That's no small task, right? Rebuilding is a costly task. We know that there had to be significant costs for materials and for tools and um, maybe and uh, maybe much of the labor was just donated, but they, all these people had to pool their resources together in order for the work to be accomplished. And the question, of course, is why did they give? <clears throat> why would they give a thousand derricks of gold, uh, twenty thousand derricks of gold from the leaders, twenty thousand from the people? That's a lot of gold. That's a lot of money. Okay. Um, and so, why did they give it? The answer, I think. Is because they believed in what they were doing. They believed that this was the work that God had called them to do. Nehemiah wasn't sitting there compelling them to give. Just like in, just like in many instances throughout the rest of the Bible, they gave freely, not under compulsion. When Moses asked the people to give to the work of the tabernacle, he had to tell them to stop giving because they gave so much. When, when, um, uh, when David invited people to start collecting materials for the temple that Solomon would build, people gave of their own free will, and it says that they rejoiced because God had given them a heart to give. That's an amazing thing. It's a gift from God. Generosity is a gift from God. And they believed they wanted to do it. They believed that they were called upon at this point in time in history to, to be part of this work for God. And so it was through, and God was going to do the work through and not apart from their willing and glad generosity to see it done. This was a, it's a gift from God. And so, uh, you know, preachers don't like to talk about giving. Uh, and I rarely talk about it explicitly. 
But the truth is, is that the Bible talks a lot about money. In fact, money is probably one of the most common topics in the entire Bible. So if you preach the Bible, you got to talk about money. Okay? <clears throat> uh, money's and people's relation to it is one of the most common topics in Scripture. The Bible has a lot to say about how we relate to our wealth and possessions. And so you can't preach the Bible without talking about it. We, I believe, have a great work ahead of us. We're not, we're not rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, then what we do might not be recorded in Scripture. But I do believe that God has appointed us to this time and to this place and to this season in the life of our church to see this work get accomplished. And I want to be among those who see that work through to completion. And just like in Nehemiah's day, God will do it through God's people believing in the work and willing to put their hands and feet and wallets to work because we believe in the work that God has called us to do. And, the, and, and thank God, God has blessed us generously. All right. But I just invite you. I just invite you to generosity. All right. That's all I'm doing is an invitation to generosity. God loves a cheerful giver. I'm not telling anybody to give anything. Well, I'm just saying as the days and months go forward, there may be a need that needs to be met. And you just say, you know what? I feel God leading me to, to meet that need. I feel God leading me to step into that and contribute to that specific new thing or need as we work together in a new church. I'm just, I'm just putting that in your mind and saying, just say, Hey, let's just, let's keep our minds and our hearts and our eyes open to be generous people as you guys most definitely are, to see the needs that are out there and to step in and meet those needs, to see the work that God has put us to do be completed. And so uh, it's about us wanting to be a part of what God is doing. Okay? And so, you know, I, and I'll just encourage you all, and, uh, <laughs> I'll just encourage you all that, you know, many people... Where, where, where do we start with being generous? Where do we start? Where do we start with becoming a generous people? Remember, generosity is a gift from God. So I just encourage people, if you don't know where to begin, if you don't know where to begin in your generosity, I just encourage you to begin with a tithe to your church. Okay? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not laying down some rule. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm saying the Old Testament biblical example that God commanded the Old Testament people was a tithe. What is a tithe? A tithe means a tenth. That's what, that's what the word tithe means. It means a tenth. A tenth of the income to support the work of the Lord, which is what he commanded. Is the new, is the tithe in the New Testament? Actually, it's not. It's not. A tithe is not in the New Testament. Well, so what are you saying, Pastor? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying if you read the book of Acts, were the people in Acts generous? They were literally selling their possessions and giving the proceeds to all as any had need. That's what the text said. So in other words, is the tithe commanded in the New Testament? I actually don't believe it is. Here's what I believe. I believe that if an old covenant person before Jesus could give a tenth of their income, what should a new covenant person with Jesus give? That's between you and the Lord. But I don't know if I want to be I don't know if we who have the Holy Spirit of God should be uh, less generous than Old Testament saints. That's just my belief. It's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. It's about, it's about a willing and a generous spirit. It's about, it's about participating in God's work. And that's what we want to do. And one of the ways, one of the many ways we can do that is through generosity. It's a gift from God. And so that's something you can pray. God, make me a generous person. It's a gift from God. Number one, rebuilders give to see the work completed. Number two, rebuilders recommit themselves to God's word. 
rebuilders recommit themselves to God's word. Uh, we see this in chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Follow along with me there in your Bibles. Rome, uh, 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 Nehemiah 8.1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both the men and the women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, uh, and as he opened it, all the people stood. That's part of the reason I ask you to stand when I read the Bible. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echab, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jezebel, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay. So, so this next part that I want to point out is the importance of God's word as it, as it relates to rebuilding. An essential step, this was an essential step of being the restored people of God. So remember, right? They had, they had rebelled against God. They were exiled because they had rebelled against God, because they had violated the book of the law and broken God's covenant, right? And now as the returned people of God post exile, right? They, if they're going to, if they're, if they're going to have any hope, right? Of God's favor falling upon them again, it's got to be a return to God's word. It's got to be a return to the book of the law. A great work has been done in rebuilding the, the wall. But remember what we talked about before, right? The biggest wall in the world can't protect you if God isn't on your side. So the fundamental and necessary step was for them to recommit themselves to God, which, and this is key, which is the same thing as recommitting to God's word. For them to recommit to God is the same thing as them recommitting to God's word because God has spoken and we have to listen to him. So to be the people that God has called us to be and to see his power and blessing uh, or work in our midst, we have to be radically and courageously committed to God's word. We have to be radically and courageously committed to God's word. Now, this text here is 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 one of the great examples in Scripture that that speaks to the importance of teachers and pastors in the church. The people, <clears throat> the people needed somebody to explain the 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 the, the text to them. Uh, and I mean, it, it's more important than ever, right? We, many of you more mature folks in here, 
you you probably take for granted the fact that you were just raised going to church. And I can say things like salvation and justification and wrath of God and sanctification. And you know what I'm talking about. But don't take that for granted. Because there's a lot of people who are my age even and younger who I can say those words and they have no idea what I'm talking about. They don't have a clue. Right? You can't, we can't take these things for granted. You were taught and people were able to explain it to you and so you understood. But there's a whole generation, maybe even close to two generations now, with almost little to no biblical understanding whatsoever. And so what do they need? What do we need? What does God give? Pastor, in, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, God gives us leaders to help, to help us, to teach us, to lead us, to guide us. And this is a great example. They read from the book of the law, verse 8, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You ever read this book and thought, what in the world does that mean? Well... I do, it happens to me, right? And so I have to go find out. I have to go try to find out. And we do the same, but God gives us people to help us with that. But the point is, is that they, they, they saw the need for the scripture. They saw the need to recommit themselves to God's word, God's word. And then that's what they did. They were, they had the grace to see that what they needed was to return to the scripture. And so they come and they gather together and they literally, they literally have a, Literally a whole morning long service. Literally took hours and hours, okay? Uh, we can probably get there, all right? Hours and hours to, to just explain the word, right? That would be great, right? To teach the word and to explain it and to understand it. And that's what they wanted. They, they were there because they wanted the word of God. They knew they needed the word of God. They knew that if they did not recommit themselves to the scripture and to God's word, they would end up just like their fathers did. And, and, and note here what happened when they, when, the, when, they heard the, when they heard the word of God. All right? When you read it here, it says, it says that they, they, they begin to weep and to mourn, okay, over, over the listening to the scripture. All right? You can imagine... I mean, some of them might not have been very familiar with the scripture at all. Okay. And then they're reading from the scripture. And then you, they hear how their own people was brought out of slavery in Egypt. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. And they and they read how their own people was brought into the promised land by, by walking through the, uh, the over the Jordan River on dry ground. And they say, wow, that's amazing. And they read about how the walls of Jericho fell just because they shouted because God dropped the walls. And they say, wow, that's amazing. And then they keep reading. And then they and they say, uh-oh, idolatry, sin, evil, wickedness. And then exile out the land. And then they realize, wait a second, this, this is about us. This is about me. This is a... We, God did all this for us and he exiled us because of our sin. And so they begin to weep and they begin to mourn. The scripture, you know, and it connected, I imagine that eventually it connected with them and say, wait a second, this isn't about, this isn't just a story about all our ancestors way back when. This is about, this is about me. <laughs> this is about me, right? 
And so, and so, um, um, it's not about, what was I about to say? I'm sorry. No problem. I just, I just lost my train of thought. Um, oh boy. Oh yeah. It's like a mirror. <laughs> it's like a mirror. Okay. So it's about, it's about me. <laughs> They saw that the scripture wasn't just a story out there. It's about me, right? And so, and so James says that the scripture is like a mirror, right? You read it and it shows you who you are, right? And so that, that, to, to, this is, to me, this is like a key point in everybody, especially in, the, in somebody's conversion experience, right? You know, if, it, I mean, lots of people won't even pick up their Bible and read it, but let's just say you read, you pick up a read, you're a non-Christian, you pick up and you read the Bible, you're just going to say, I'm just going to see what that's about. And you start reading it and you say, okay, well, that's kind of a weird story. Oh, that's a really weird story. And then you keep reading and you keep reading. But then one day you get to some parts of the story, say like Romans 3, for example, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then, and then you keep reading and then all, and then all of a sudden one day it just kind of dawns on you. Wait a second. That's about me. That's not about some random folks 2,000 years ago that don't matter. That's about me. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that changes you. It changes your perspective. It changes your life when you realize that this isn't just a random book, a random ancient book, but it's a book that is eternally relevant because it was written by God for us. And they understood that, that it was about them, and they, and they knew that they needed to change. And so in the same way, we have to recommit ourselves to God's word, to be willing to look in the mirror. You know, sometimes you don't want to look in the mirror. <laughs> you, ever went out, you ever rushed out of the house without looking in the mirror? I've done that a couple times. Be like... <laughs> you look in the mirror, you have to be willing to look in the mirror, face the music. And say, hey, look, I don't, I'm not, I don't look like I thought I did. And you use that, you use that pain to, to change, to bring you to repentance. And so I think in our case, what that means is that, like we're doing in our, in our vision meetings, which I've been super encouraged by, have some really great conversations. What, are, what, what's one of the things we're doing? We're going back to the scriptures and reevaluating the scriptures and saying, well, well, what does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? We're taking a fresh look at God's word so that we can, so that we can see for ourselves what it says and not just take things for granted. We can't just take things for granted. We got to read the scriptures. We learn from others, but we got to look at the book for ourselves and come to the convictions, uh, that, that are biblical and apply biblical principles in our own day and in our own context. But everything's got to come back to the word of God. We gotta see what the Bible says about how to do church and what the church looks like and exercise godly principles and godly wisdoms to say, okay, here, here's how, here's, here's a way that we could do it that will likely, that will be biblically faithful and most effective in the day in which we live. But the Word of God leads the way. So number one, rebuilders give to see the work completed. Number two, rebuilders commit themselves to God's Word. And finally, number three, rebuilders Acknowledge their sin and plead for God's mercy. Rebuilders acknowledge their sin 
and plead for God's mercy. We see this in chapter 9. Chapter 9. So chapter 9 um, is, a, is a long chapter, and it's really a large prayer. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to read some, just some portions from it for us this morning. You can follow along. The first is uh, uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, uh, 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 from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, uh, for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then they continue to, to, um, to pray. And let's jump down to verse 30. Look at, look with me in verse 30. It says, many years, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Uh, now jump down to verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Okay, so if you go back and you read the the chapter there in chapter 9, it's a very lengthy prayer. Again, that continues Nehemiah's theme of the importance of prayer. Okay, Nehemiah records several prayers in this book, in a relatively short book. I, I think he's really emphasizing the, the importance and significance of prayer in the life of the people of Israel. Okay, and, and as should be in, in our lives. Okay, and if you go back to chapter 9, if you read the whole thing, you would see that what they do in their prayer, which is not totally uncommon, is that they essentially recount in the prayer the whole story of Israel. Okay, the whole story of Israel from, uh, from creation to the choosing of Abraham, uh, to the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt through Moses. Okay. Uh, through the receiving of the law from Moses on Mount Sinai. So these are the, these are the quintessential huge events in the, in the life of the history of Israel. But as you read the prayer, as you read the prayer, kind of a key theme that starts kind of, 
coming out in the prayer, if you go back and, and you read the whole thing, is that despite all of God's mighty works on their behalf, the people were still stiff-necked and rebellious. And that, of course, is a major theme of the Old Testament, right? They literally, ten plagues on Egypt, they walk through the Red Sea, and then they're complaining about having no water to drink, and not having the food they want, and so on and so forth, okay? And that's just the story. It's just, it characterizes the story. In verse, uh, look at verse 17 there. In verse 17 it says, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. So even after, so God showed mercy on them, right? My, my, that, God literally said, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any graven image. Okay? Moses goes up on the mountain. Golden calf. Okay? Golden calf. All right? But God... And then Moses comes down and breaks the tablets and has to go back up and get some more and beg God to have mercy on them, which God does. Okay? And then, then God leads them into the, the promised land and, and multiplies their offspring just as he told Abraham he would, and yet still they turn to idols, as we read there uh, again in verse 30. It said, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. So, so even after they started committing all these idolatries in the, in the, the times of the kings, right? That's where the prophets come in. And so God would just send them prophet after prophet saying, Hey guys, wake up. Come back. Turn back to the Lord. But they would, they would not listen. <laughs> anybody, anybody ever have to be told a lot of times before you start listening? That ever happened to anybody? But did they blame God for all this? No. And, and, and again, in verse 33, the, the, the Levites there in the prayer say, you've been righteous in all that have come upon us. You have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. We got what we deserve. We got what we deserve is what they're saying. In fact, they can even say um, that as the restored people of God post-exile, okay, they still, in, a, in essence, live as slaves in the land of Israel because they're under Persian authority. They're not free. And so even after all that, even after the return from the exile, they're still not, they know it's not, <laughs> it's not right yet. So the prayer is powerful. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of acknowledging sin. It's a prayer of, it's a prayer of acknowledging God's righteousness in the judgments that he poured out on them. It's a prayer that acknowledges the situation that they're in, and it's a plea for God to have mercy and to forgive them and to restore them and to renew them. And so it's astounding that in the Bible, God, despite heinous, grievous, blatant, high-handed, Stiff-necked, rebellious sin 
He forgives. He forgives. If you come back and your heart's broken before the Lord and you ask for mercy and, for, and really desire it and want God to change you, He forgives. He forgives. He forgives. That's amazing. Psalm 51. David, after committing adultery and murder, says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You, you become genuinely broken over your sin, genuinely broken over the state of your heart, the condition of your heart. And you come to God with a broken heart and in contrition and humility. And, and, and you, you just acknowledge God's righteousness and your unrighteousness. And you bring that before the Lord. He forgives. Isaiah 66, 2, one of my favorite verses. Says, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God made everything. God rules everything. But if you have a humble heart, a contrite, broken heart over sin, a heart that fears God and trembles at his word, the God of the universe is looking at you. He's watching over you. He's for you. That's who God looks to. He doesn't look to the strong and mighty and powerful. He doesn't look to the, to the proud and lofty in this world. He looks to the people whose hearts are broken over their sin, who cry out to him for mercy. We want God looking on us. We want him looking out for us. So as we move forward, we must walk in a posture of repentance, right? It's a posture of repentance. Repentance is not something you just do one time, right? I don't know about you, but I have to wake up every morning and repent of my sin. I have to go to bed every night and repent of my sin. It's a posture of repentance. It's a posture of our heart that we bring before God every day and say, God, have mercy on us. God, give us grace. God, give us the strength to complete the work that you have laid before us. And when we do that, he'll forgive and he'll look upon us and bless the work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to be here. Thank you, God, that through Jesus Christ, you'll look on people even like us. Unworthy, God, though we are. Oh, Lord, we need you. So, God, help us to bring our contrite and broken hearts before you. Help us to turn away from all sin, God. Maybe there's some sin in our lives right now, God. Just convict us. Press it upon our hearts, God, and just give us the grace to turn. Turn from that sin. Be broken over it. Come back to you. Because a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So we come to you this morning and say, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon our sins. For Christ's sake, Lord. And walk us through this season, God. Guide us 
by your hand. Guide us by your spirit. As we try to do something that is not humanly possible. With man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.